So the last thing that I made with my butcher box shipment was aloo chicken, and it turned out really well. One of my favorite things is to get the shipment and then open up the New York Times cooking app and see what I want to create over the next few weeks. It helps my creative cooking chops, and both my wife and I really enjoy it. ButcherBox offers a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing price, plus they have exclusive member deals, and they also have their own recipes, although I am preferential to the New York Times app, but that's just me. And you can sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and get their special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. So for that year, you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com conspirituality and use code conspirituality to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Conspirituality, where we investigate the intersection of conspiracy theories and spiritual influence to uncover cults, pseudoscience, and authoritarian extremism. In today's brief, I'll be talking to Frank Hahn, who's a board-certified pediatrician and pediatric cardiologist who writes for science-based medicine, and we'll be talking about the anti-vaccine book titled Turtles All the Way Down. Welcome, Frank. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for making the time. So the anti-vaccine industry boasts a boatload of books and quote unquote documentary films like Andrew Wakefield's Vaxxed and the one by RFK Jr.'s uh, Children's Health Defense titled Medical Racism, The New Apartheid. But this book, Turtles All the Way Down, which was published almost exactly a year ago now, seems to be making new inroads. I, I just started to become aware of it because I noticed on Twitter in some threads, people would say, you have to read Turtles All the Way Down if you want to know the truth. Um, and then I looked and it's currently listed on Amazon as the 1300th in, in that range uh, bestseller in all books. But more troubling than that is it's the fourth bestseller in their children's health category and the fifth in public health administration. Now, Frank, you've taken on quite the Sisyphean task here. You're going through this entire 518 page text and you're doing a 10 part series of articles that you call a grand debunk of it. So first, who wrote the book? Who published it? What's the general topic? The specific authors I don't think are known. It's an anonymous uh, author team. It was edited by a 
Children's Health Defense Council by the name of Mary Holland and the uh, a liaison with Children's uh, Health Defense and also Thinking Mums Revolution co-founder uh, Zoe O'Toole. The general idea is they tried to look at each of the administrative FDA uh, basic science and uh, medical science aspects of uh, pediatric and some adult vaccination, and they try to find all of the logical holes in what uh, mainstream pediatricians do, but they don't do a very good job at it. Uh-huh. So why, I mean, there's so much of this kind of stuff out there. Why did you decide this was worth your time, first of all, to read and then to do this long series debunking it? The Well, I certainly could have there's a very large number of choices of anti-vax books to to yeah. debunk, and so I thought this book used most of the main tactics that the whole anti-vax uh, ecosystem likes to use, and I mainly picked it so that you could I could take the opportunity to illustrate all of those tactics and where the the anti-vax ecosystem has their own logical holes. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it that makes sense that it would be a kind of bumper, but given that it's so long, it's a compendium of all of the standard fallacies and misleading anti-vax uh, talking points. So it provides a good opportunity. Is there anything new so far? I don't think so. The uh, If you look mm-hmm. back to even way back when the first anti-vaxxer posters were done back when uh, the smallpox vaccination was a brand new thing and they were trying to inoculate cows with uh, and uh, milkmaids with the very, very first vaccination. Even back then, they were using some of the same tactics. But in general, I don't think there's anything particularly new, maybe with the exception of they periodically look at some of the newer studies and apply some of their same logical problems to them and then come to the wrong conclusion. Yeah, I mean, if we think back to that time with with uh, smallpox and cowpox, the uh, the sort of hysteria was that was being propagandistically sort of dispersed by people who were opposed to vaccines at that time seemed to have a religious and a kind of science phobic, like monstrous sense that, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be ingest, you're going to be giving your kids cow DNA, essentially, you're creating some kind of monstrous human animal hybrid. And of course, that would be against the will of God. Are you saying there are some arguments that are similar to that? Or what are you referring to? That's the general idea, yes. So some of the, uh, the some of the arguments that are used in the book, they don't they don't go over smallpox very much, sure. of course, in this book. But some of the general ways that they think are still the same. And uh, if you even just look on just science-based medicine, some of the to some of the posts back in the earlier days, then you'll see similarities and. The topics that yeah, it's interesting too that the book is flying under uh, anonymous authorship, right? Which is it's sort of it both gives someone uh, a, a sort of kind of immunity against being accountable for what they've written, but it feels like it also perpetuates a kind of conspiracist intrigue, right? Where it's like they're they're keeping their identity secret because they're a brave truth teller or something. Is that the sense you get? Uh, exactly right. 
So at the moment, the big story, and we're covering it a lot here, although it seems like um, his campaign might implode soon, is that Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is still running for the Democratic presidential nomination. One thing that I hear him say a lot when the topic turns to vaccines is that no childhood vaccine has ever undergone pre-licensing placebo-controlled safety trials. Does this book repeat that claim? And what's what's the problem with that claim? It, it does repeat that claim, uh, but what you have to do is to look at the very first trial in a particular vaccine category to find the placebo-controlled trial. So the, the WHO has a long document on how to ethically use placebos. And so the general idea is that you have to make a placebo as close as possible to the medicine you want to test with the exception of the active ingredient. And so in some cases that can be saline and in some cases that can be a vaccine container with all of the inactive ingredients but not the pneumococcus or uh, meningitis or whatever vaccine that you are designing. And so if you go the rule in the WHO uh, discussion on the topic says that when there is no vaccine available for a disease, you may test it uh, against placebo. But the newer iterations of the vaccine, like, for example, there are several iterations of the uh, pneumococcal vaccine. The, those are tested against the older, the newer ones are tested against the older iterations of the uh, pneumococcal vaccine and so the if you only look at those you'll get the impression that there was no placebo ever tested but if you go back to the when that particular vaccine was first tested then you'll find the placebo control trial yeah it's interesting right because on the one hand I hear this is this is a kind of gish gallop tactic that a lot of anti-vaccine activists will do and conspiracy theorists in general is they'll find some technicality where, uh, you know, sometimes to, to, to be fair, sometimes they probably think they've really discovered the, the way in which people are being duped. And they'll, so I heard you describing different types of placebo that might be used, right? And, and how it seems that a lot of times they're going to say, well, that this trial doesn't qualify as having used a, a placebo because they weren't, they weren't even given an injection, for example, or maybe the injection they were given didn't also include, say, the adjuvants that are often uh, claimed to be dangerous to children. Can you say anything about that? The well, there. I think that uh, Dr. Paul Offit has uh, written some really in-depth uh, articles on that. So the general idea is yes, they will say, okay, there's a vaccine that uh, was tested against another vaccine, and they're upset about that. And they might say that a vaccine was tested against the. Uh, inactive ingredients, or they would say that the vaccine was tested against the an older version of the uh, the older version of the current vaccine, such as the the PCV13 versus the P, the older PCV7, and then they'll get uh, all uh, disappointed about that kind of thing. But then the general idea is that they're concerned that the not enough side effects are captured, but then the when each vaccine is released, there's a long period of uh, phase four 
mm-hmm. post-marketing surveillance. And it's called slightly different things in different countries. Like in England, you'll have the, the yellow card scheme. But they have there's lots and lots of time for a, a national health department to monitor uh-huh. for side effects. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're what you're saying is they're they're just wrong. They just don't understand how the process works essentially. Or they uh, look at that, and or they just look at a a portion of the whole vaccine safety monitoring mm-hmm. process, and then they uh, complain it's not up to their standards. Where when they could have put everything in context. Yeah, yeah. It strikes me too. You know, one thing I've, I've noticed a lot, and uh, Bobby Kennedy will do this, is that people who are they'll say they're not anti-vaccine. They're just asking questions, right? They just think vaccines should be uh, tested in in safer ways and we should have an open conversation about them. They claim that there's censorship happening. One of the things that they will invoke is the specter of the horrible medical atrocity that happened at Tuskegee. And I'll talk about how you know, the, the what's happening with vaccines today is is similar to what happened in Tuskegee. And the thing that always strikes me as incredibly ironic about that is that what was done at Tuskegee is the whole population of people was given uh, no medical treatment. So they, they were told that they were being given medicine, but they were actually being given uh, placebos and being told that they were being treated for syphilis when really what the researchers were doing w- was tracking the disease process of syphilis to see what would happen if it was untreated which is is an absolutely terrible thing to do. And yet these anti-vax people will bring up this as an example of why you can't trust big pharma and why you can't trust medical science. But when I hear someone like Bobby Kennedy saying, listen, if I'm president, I'm going to make sure that we have, we're going to look at all of these childhood vaccines and we're going to test them really, really carefully. And we're going to do double blind placebo controlled trials to make sure that they're absolutely safe. To me, I actually hear him suggesting a version of Tuskegee because I'm imagining a whole group of, of children and infants who are in a, in a double-blinded group so that nobody knows whether or not they're being given the vaccine, but they're being given a placebo against illnesses that we know produce death and disfigurement and disability in, in reliably awful ways. Does, does that add up to you? So I, I would answer that at several levels in that, yes, the general idea is they don't really... Uh, consider that aspect of the trial that they propose. Mm-hmm. And so the, I would, I guess many of us would like to see RFK tried to argue their case in front of an institutional review board and then see what the response is. But the, yeah, one of the big reasons that we don't run that kind of trial is because then we expose uh, children and adults to very serious vaccine preventable diseases. Mm-hmm. And so for the, the Tuskegee thing, I think that most mainstream physicians would be upset at what the, peop- the organizers of that trial did. Yeah. And they could even join the anti-vaxxers in saying that that was the very, uh, the very terrible stuff. So the, that's why there is a, lots of rules on the ethical conduct of randomized controlled trials and the, the ethical completion of informed consent these days, which the public is welcome to look at with their physician if they're interested. And so I'm all for 
uh, answering questions in my office, and that's really a big part of what what physicians do. And yeah. so, what I see as an as an issue on social media is there are certain groups of people who ask questions without a sincere desire to know the answer, or they uh, go there to ask questions to uh, pick a fight. And so, those kinds of things are you generally not welcome by uh, mainstream pediatricians or other uh, science communicators. But if you want to have a discussion of a journal article or uh, one of the clinical trials on a, a pediatric vaccine, I would be more than happy to stay late to help that family uh, do that kind of stuff. And I think many of my pediatrician colleagues would as well, but it's just potentially may require more than one visit if you're in a primary care office because that discussion might take a while, but it's so well, more than happy to have that kind of discussion. Yeah, that's much more worthwhile than trying to engage with people just asking questions on the internet who typically have an agenda and a, and a pretty right. extreme sort of set of beliefs that they're dug in on. And they're, they're basically asking you questions to try to lead into whatever their next um, fallacious argument is going to be, right? Yes, exactly. So I know that with regard to Turtles All the Way Down, you've just delivered the first two installments of the series. Are there main points so far that you think it's worth summarizing right now in terms of what it gets wrong? And are there things that are half right or that it's getting right, but is maybe sort of misusing? There are, I think I would summarize uh, my two essays with maybe two to three points so far. So one is they try to look at a sec a small area of what we do in vaccine science and then distort it. Mm -hmm. A second point would probably be just a lack of the outright lack of reading when they say something was something was not done when it was actually done. Mm -hmm. And then the sec the third thing is for Things, certain things that they propose, like you said, uh, uh, RCT with a new vaccine versus uh, saline placebo, they fail to really, really think through the consequences of what they want. Mm -hmm. And I think those, those three points would summarize the two essays I put out so far. Okay. I have right now, Dr. Hannes, a, a tragic sense that as a culture, we're in a worse place now on this topic than we were before COVID with anti-vaccine or vaccine hesitant attitudes about the COVID vaccines now having a spillover into all vaccines, especially those required for children. Is, is this something that you're seeing, you know, both in your work and in, in your writing and research? Uh, yes, I think so. The, I think that the primary care physicians and, uh, physician assistants and uh, nurse practitioners are seeing the brunt of it mm -hmm. because they have to deal the closest with all of the childhood vaccines. I'm a subspecialist, so I don't spend most of my time talking about those things, but looking at what our colleagues in primary care deal with, I'd certainly have to see it. And the vaccine that comes up in the our subspecialist office the most is the COVID vaccine. And so we're certainly uh, seeing a lot of discussion to that effect on that but yes as a uh, as a uh, whole primary care ecosystem yes we're seeing a lot more uh, vaccine hesitancy and it seems that especially with childhood vaccines we're probably we probably should be prepared for 
a few years now in which there are going to be things like measles outbreaks. There are going to be various kinds of tragic outcomes uh, amongst children from diseases that in a way we, we've, we've been a victim of the success of vaccines that people have just not seen how bad these diseases can be. And now we're going to get to have another chance at seeing the reality of, of uh, large numbers of kids being unvaccinated or a higher percentage than we've had before. Does that seem right to you? Right on. So the what talking about the how the vaccines are sometimes a victim of their own success. That's certainly true. In that, even a lot of pediatricians, these younger pediatricians these days, have not seen uh, vaccine preventable diseases directly. Our, our mentors and older generation have definitely have, and it's just, it's really a shame that a lot of co- communities will have to learn the hard way, so to speak, on what. Uh, Gen, uh, genuine measles or pertussis outbreak looks yeah. like. So as a science communicator, I wanted to finish up by just asking you what you think the best approaches are to trying to improve the discourse around vaccines, both publicly and also in our personal lives, because a lot of our listeners may have friends or colleagues or families who are tragically confused on the topic. There's several levels of things that need to be done. So I think that more collaboration between the physician and healthcare societies and the legislators on vaccines is ultimately going to be the biggest long-term connection that needs to be made because you can see many, many anti-vax characters over the past few years have been just touring the country or uh, other countries speaking their mind to legislators with all of the same topics that are illustrated in totals all the way down. And the the legislators are fundamentally uh, usually lawyers by training, so they don't have the science background to really accurately debunk what those witnesses are saying. And so they need to hear from physician and medical societies about the importance of childhood vaccination. On a personal friend and uh, physician visit level, I think if you have a friend that is willing to talk about it, that is fantastic. I would set up something along the lines of a judgment-free zone, like, hey, come on down, we're friends, we can talk about this and discuss the science of the issue at hand. And so with the... If you're in a, a physician visit scenario, I think that having the opportunity to uh, talk about a specific aspect of a vaccine chemistry or clinical science, I think, is a great yeah, thing yeah. to do. And then it may uh, help a family get it because a lot of it's understandable that most uh, most people aren't. Uh, chemistry majors and they don't know how vaccines work really, really in depth. So it's it's understandable that there's some fear as to how these things work. And so just having, at least starting with a, a systematic conversation in your physician offices, office time, I think is a, a great way to start at the individual mm-hmm. level. What about the, uh, the person at the water cooler at work who says, you know, I've been reading this mind-blowing book called Turtles All the Way Down, uh, and it's making me rethink my my choice to get my kids vaccinated. Maybe this time around I won't do it. What what can a sort of, you know, everyday layperson say in response to that? Is there anything? 
if the if they've really 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 changed their mind, then probably that's very very uh, they're very very hard to start to make inroads because in some cases it becomes almost like mm-hmm. a tribalism, like this is part wrapped into their identity and. That's those are the most difficult cases to talk to. But the it may start with an open open ended, uh, let's say non judgmental question such as how do you know, or present points, uh, ask them to present points from the book, and then start to have this mm-hmm. discussion with them. It may it may take a while, but between uh, it may require people who are good friends or uh, people who have known each other. For for a while, like I I would never try this on the New York subway, for example. But the, uh, if you can start with a judgment-free zone and some kind of uh, open discussion, that's the best way to start between like two acquaintances mm-hmm. in the office. So there has to be a level of trust there, is what you're saying, in order to maintain the the human connection whilst uh, wading into these difficult areas. Uh, Dr. Frank Hahn, thank you so much for joining me today. And I'll remind people they can find you at sciencebasedmedicine.org where you're doing this 10-part debunk of turtles all the way down. Appreciate your time. And thank you for having me on. 